Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. And thank you that you've been speaking to us as it's been read. And we pray now, as we consider this passage together, that your Spirit will be opening our eyes, that we might see Jesus more clearly uh, and follow him uh, in the way he wants us to. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we did an anonymous survey in our church about fasting, uh, I wonder what we would discover. I will probably find that some people fast and some people don't. Uh, and we will probably also find that most people haven't really thought about it seriously from the Scriptures. One of the benefits of preaching through a book of the Bible is that it forces us to confront topics that we would otherwise might have avoided or forgotten. And fasting is one of them. It's very prominent in our passage today, and the passage raises questions uh, that, about it that we will deal with, though it's not the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is the identity of Jesus and the change that he brings. Two weeks ago, uh, we looked at Matthew 9. As we looked at Matthew 9, we saw that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And we saw how he visibly demonstrated this by making a paralyzed man walk. And then last week, we saw him call a sinner, Matthew himself. And Matthew left behind his sinful job and followed Jesus. And when the Pharisees asked his disciples why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus explained that calling sinners was the whole purpose for which he came. But all that eating also gave rise to another question. If the question last week was, why does Jesus eat? The question this week is, why don't his disciples fast? At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus himself had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, like Moses did at Mount Sinai when he received the law. Uh, but there's no sign that his disciples are doing anything like that. In fact, they don't even do the kind of fasting that other Jewish groups engaged in. Uh, and so in verse 14 of Matthew 9, the disciples of John come to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now to understand this, let's work out from what we've seen in Matthew already, in light of the Old Testament, why the disciples of John the Baptist fasted, and why the Pharisees fasted. Matthew has already shown us, back in chapter 3, that John the Baptist was God's promised messenger, the one who will come ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for him. Israel had been under God's punishment for their sins. Uh, in a sense, they were still in exile because while they're physically back from the exile, they're back in the land, the promises that was going to come true at the end of the exile hadn't happened yet. God's kingdom had not yet come. But John called Israel to repentance, to mourn for their sins, to turn away from them because the kingdom was at hand. And God will bring in both judgment and salvation with the coming of the kingdom. So why would John's disciples fast? Well, in the Old Testament, there were at least three things that fasting was for. And one of those things was an expression of mourning and repentance. When you are very sad, you don't want to eat. And so fasting was an expression of sadness. Mourning over sin and the punishment that came from it. Uh, so for example, in 1 Samuel 7, when Samuel called the people of Israel to turn away from idols and to serve God only, 
they gathered together and fasted. And they said, we've sinned against the Lord. And God saved them from the Philistines. In 1 Kings 21, the evil king Ahab, when he heard the word of judgment from God's prophet, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, fasted and went about dejectedly. And God said, because he humbled himself before me, I won't bring disaster in his day. In Nehemiah 9, after they read the law, the people of Israel realized their sinfulness. They assembled with fasting and sackcloth and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. In Daniel 9, when Daniel realized the time was coming for the physical return from the exile, he turned his face to God, it says, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And when Jonah preached to Nineveh and warned them of the judgment to come, the king commanded everyone to fast and call out to God and turn from their evil ways and violence. And who knows, he said, God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so we may not perish. So, if John was calling Israel to repent and to turn back to God in anticipation of his judgment and salvation, no wonder lah, he taught his disciples to fast. Why did the disciples of John fast? In mourning and repentance, in anticipation of the kingdom. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, we saw last week, were a religious group who tried to strictly keep the law of Moses and a whole lot of other laws from their tradition. They were highly respected as religious men. Why do the Pharisees fast? Well, back in chapter 6, verse 16, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus has already given them a burn without mentioning their name. He told his disciples back there that when they fast, they weren't to do it like the hypocrites who disfigure themselves so their fasting may be seen by others. The Pharisees fasted so they would look religious. And the law of Moses said to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And later on in Israel's history, they might have added some annual fast to remember certain disasters, but those were like regular ritual fast, that, the second kind of fast that's in the Old Testament. But the Pharisees, they were so extra that they fasted twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. But their hearts were far from God. They did not love Jesus, they did not love others, they did not care for justice and mercy, and yet they thought that their fasting would make God pleased with them. They thought they were better than the tax collectors and sinners we heard about last week. Why did the Pharisees fast? To be seen by men, to get merit points with God, and to do outward religious activities so they can feel good about themselves while still sinning in their hearts. So the disciples of John fast for good reason. The Pharisees fast for a bad reason. But the disciples of Jesus don't seem to fast. Or if they do, the disciples of John don't know about it because the disciples of Jesus take the Sermon on the Mount so seriously that they don't tell. And these disciples of John are a little bit concerned. The disciples of Jesus seem to be a little less pious, shall we say, than all the other groups. And that reflects on their teacher. And so they asked Jesus why. But Jesus asked them back in verse 15. Can the wedding guests, or literally sons of the bridal chamber, mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? 
Now, just imagine you're a friend of a bridegroom, uh, and there you are with him and the other groomsmen uh, in the hotel he's staying at uh, before he leaves for the wedding. And when the group is having breakfast, you are crying and lamenting and refusing to eat as if you're going for a funeral. Now, that would just really spoil the atmosphere, wouldn't it? Because this is not the time to mourn or be sad. Jesus says his disciples don't fast because the bridegroom is present. But when he does that, he's actually telling them, and the Spirit through Matthew is telling us, something more about Jesus' identity. He is the bridegroom. Now that is another dramatically big claim. Because in the Old Testament metaphor, the bride is Israel, God's people, and the bridegroom is God. Uh, for example, in the book of Hosea, God is like a spurned husband as Israel leaves him and runs to other gods, but God looks forward to the day when he brings her back and he betrothes her. Same idea in Isaiah 54. And in Isaiah 62, our Old Testament lesson, God speaks about a time when the, the nation will be desolate because of sin, but the time will come when God restores and there will be great jubilation. And as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will God rejoice over you. And Jesus is saying here, I am the bridegroom. He's putting himself in the place of God. I have come for my people. Now is not the time to mourn. Now is not the time to fast. You fast to disciples of John. You fast, you pray because you're asking God to send the Messiah. You're fasting and praying because you want God to bring in the kingdom. You fast and you mourn for your sins. But now the Messiah is here. The king has arrived and he's already started forgiving sins. We saw that just now. We saw that last week. He's already started collecting sinners and drawing them to himself. You don't realize God has come to save his people. So the time for fasting is over. The time to party is here because I am here, Jesus says. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, let's go back to that imaginary wedding day we spoke about earlier. So you arrive with a groom at the cathedral and it's really happy, lots of people, lots of laughter, lots of joy. And then suddenly, when the service is about to start, some gangsters walk in and kidnap the bridegroom. Are you still going to go to the restaurant later and enjoy the dinner? Of course not. You'll be far too upset. Uh, suddenly, celebration will no longer be appropriate. I tell you, no matter how good the four seasons that the chef prepares, you will still have no appetite to eat it. And Jesus says in the second half of verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Of course, Jesus is speaking about his death, isn't it? Jesus, the bridegroom who came for his people, was instead taken away. Uh, in the words of Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment. And his death would leave a gaping big hole in the wedding. His friends would go into shock and mourning. And on that day, they will fast. But Jesus says to the disciples of John, not today. Today the bridegroom is with the wedding party. And the time is to rejoice. And then from there, Jesus goes on to address the bigger question. 
about the religious customs and practices the Jews were involved in. And he does so in two parables. The first one is about cloth. If you've got an old piece of cloth and you've got a hole in it and you sew a new piece of cloth on it that hasn't been shrunk, what happens when you put it in the wash? Well, the new part will shrink and the old part will not and the cloth will be spoiled. Jesus says in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. The old and the new, they don't mix. Second parable about wine and wineskins. Right? Wineskins were like bags to hold wine because they didn't have bottles like those days. And Jesus says in verse 17, neither is new wine put into the old wineskins. Why? You see, when new wine, new wine is still fermenting. And when new wine ferments, it expands the container. But the old wineskins are brittle. They, they can't expand like fresh wineskins can. And so pressure builds up as the fermentation gets more and more. And then until, bang, it says the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. Ayosayang, all the wine, all right? And all the skins. And Jesus continues, new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. When Jesus came, he brought in the kingdom of God. And that could not fit into the religious structure and practice of first century Judaism. Whether it be the self-righteous, legalistic, hypocritical religion of the Pharisees, or even the godly, expecting, preparatory teaching of John the Baptist. Jesus was the new cloth. Can't be stuck to the old garment. He's bringing in new wines. Cannot go into the old wineskins. But mixing the two was a danger in Matthew's time. And in fact, it's still a danger today. Uh, we see it illustrated in other parts of the New Testament. In the book of Galatians, the false teachers were saying, unless you're circumcised, the Old Testament law, you cannot be saved. But we are saved by faith in Christ, not faith plus circumcision. In Colossians, which we read about earlier, some people were insisting that Christians have to observe special days and Sabbaths and new moons and other Jewish festivals. And there were certain foods that Christians can't eat and certain things they can't taste and certain things that they've forbidden to touch. And Paul says, no, no, no. Christ's death has freed us from all that. Uh, from grateful hearts that know our forgiveness and know our future. God wants us to get rid of sexual immorality and idolatry. He wants us to get rid of unloving behavior towards others. But doing harsh things to the body doesn't actually help us with either of those two. But it's not just in New Testament times. Even today, there are well-meaning Christians who want us to go back to some of these Old Testament laws. There are those who insist that you must observe some dietary rules, like cannot eat pop. There are those who insist that literal Sabbath observance, Saturday Sabbath, is compulsory. And there are those who insist that by God's law, we must give 10% of our income to the church, like a tax, rather than allowing us the freedom to give from a heart that is grateful for our salvation. In fact, there are churches that publicly shame members who fail to comply by putting their names on notice board. In terms of this passage, it's, that's all wineskin stuff. But let's go back to fasting, because that's what triggered this discussion in the first place. Should the disciples of Jesus fast? 
Well, Jesus says they will fast when the bridegroom is taken away. That's his death law. But what about after the resurrection? He says the wedding guests can't mourn while he is with them, but, but is the bridegroom with us? Well, on the one hand, the very last words of Matthew's gospel, the risen Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So at least there is one sense in which the bridegroom is still with us. The bridegroom has returned to the wedding party. We are, we are looking forward to the, the marriage supper at the end of the age. And, and so now is also now is the, the period for rejoicing. And yet also in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will picture the time between his first coming and second coming as the time when he is away. Uh, for example, in the parable of the ten virgins, they need to keep their lamps trimmed as the bridegroom is delayed. Or the parable of the talents when the master goes away and comes back. So on the one hand, the bridegroom is with us by his spirit. So now is the time to rejoice. But we're also waiting for the bridegroom to come in the flesh. We are living in the now and not yet. The kingdom has come in the death and resurrection of Christ. But the kingdom will come in all its fullness when he returns. We have tasted the joy of salvation, but the final salvation is yet to come. Now is the time for rejoicing. Yet there's still time for sorrow. And in a world where there is still sin and sorrow and pain, there will still be times to mourn, even when the basic orientation of our piety is to joy. And in those times, it is appropriate to fast. Coming out of Matthew's Gospel, we also see positive examples of fasting in the New Testament church. In Acts 9 verse 9, Saul ate and drank nothing for three days after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That one, maybe he's just in shock. Uh, but in Acts chapter 13 verse 2, the church leaders at Antioch were explicitly worshipping the Lord and fasting when the Holy Spirit told them to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which he had called them. And then in verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them out as missionaries. In Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas themselves appointed elders in each church which they planted, and they committed them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. So notice this fasting was not a legalistic thing like the Pharisees fasting to earn merit points with God or to show they're better than others. And it wasn't a sign of mourning and repentance so that God would bring in the kingdom like with the disciples of John. Rather, it was something that went together with prayer. Which actually reflects the third function of fasting in the Old Testament, that is, fasting to pray. Uh, in the Old Testament book of Ezra, when Ezra and his people wanted to pray for safety in what would have been a very dangerous journey back from the exile, he proclaims a fast. And he says, it's to humble ourselves before our God. And so fasting there was somehow expressing humility in prayer. In Isaiah 58.3, God's people's fasting was equivalent to them humbling themselves. Now, he still didn't listen to their prayers because they were oppressing their workers. Right? But, but fasting was supposed to express humility in prayer. 
And even though fasting often expressed mourning in the book of Esther, there is an occasion in chapter 4 where Esther asks Mordecai to get the people together and fast for her as she takes a big risk to save her people. And so this fasting combined with prayer seems to be an expression of humility and dependence on God in a very serious situation. And that seems to be the way it is used in the early church. They fast and pray before commissioning missionaries and appointing elders. And that, that can be an example for us, isn't it? Now, of course, we must get the balance of Scripture right. right? Prayer is mentioned many times in the New Testament uh, as being done by God's people. The only examples we see of, of that happening in the early church is, is what we, or fasting in the early church is what we see here. Right? So it's not prominent in New Testament Christianity, but it's there. It's never commanded as a necessity, but it's a valid and biblical thing to do. And so there may be times when we face something really, really serious that not only do we pray, but we fast and pray. Not to twist God's arm to say, well, I fasted, so you have to give me this. Not to make our prayers more acceptable to God as if coming to God through Jesus is not enough. We need to add our own works to it. But rather to humble ourselves to express our own inadequacy, our own helplessness, our need for God to act. To say, God, look, I can't do anything. Can you please help me? We really need your aid. We are totally dependent on you. Now that's something that can be done in a group or it can be done alone. But if you're doing it alone, then do it in secret. And either way, be very careful that what is meant to express humility does not instead lead to spiritual pride. Finally, I want to remind us that the main point here is actually not about fasting. Matthew doesn't tell us about this incident so we know when to fast, not to fast. What he really wants us to see here is that Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one who brings in the kingdom. He is God come for his people. And that changes everything about how the Jews should relate to God, both the godly expected Jews and the ungodly hypocritical ones. And that changes everything for us as well. You can't mix Christianity with other religions. Please don't try. The gospel will not only burst the wineskins of Judaism, but of every religious, philosophical, or spiritual system that we might try to mix it with. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is God, come to save and rule his people. And so Jesus and his gospel must be the source and center, not only of our beliefs, but of our spiritual practice and piety as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the bridegroom and that he has come for us, his people. Help us to rejoice in his presence with us now by his Spirit, even as we mourn for the brokenness of our world and long for the day when he'll return for the wedding banquet 
and our life everlasting with him. We pray that you always give us hearts that are humble and obedient before you. And when it's appropriate to express our dependence upon you in, in fasting and prayer, guard our hearts, we pray, that we might do it for the right reasons and reflect that in the way we treat others. And please, would you give us discernment so that all that we do in devotion to you springs from the gospel of your Son, is centered on him, and leads us to be more and more like him in our character. We ask this, Lord, in his name. Amen.